0: Hi, and welcome to Movie Time Capsule, where each episode, I tell my guests that the world is ending and that they must put the movies they think are worth saving into their own time capsule. On this episode, we have Drew Taylor. He has made a career out of talking and writing about movies, and in our conversation, he'll tell me about his favorite directors that he's gotten to interview over the years. He will reveal the on-screen character that he relates to the most. And heads up, we go on a tangent about Mission Impossible. We both love the series dearly. Drew has an astounding podcast dedicated to it, so naturally we decided to rank the series from top to bottom. I apologize if you're not a fan of those movies, but selfishly for me, it was freaking awesome. All right, let's get into it.
1: It is time to talk about movies, all your favorites, all your loved ones. We will hear them and we'll cheer them. It is time for Movie Time Capsule.
0: Today I'm very happy to have with me a movie lover, a film journalist, an author, a podcaster. Welcome to the show, Drew Taylor.
1: Oh, thank you so much. It's it's great to be here and my wife thanks you because now I am out of the living room for an hour and out of her hair. So she's very appreciative as well.
0: <laughs> I'm glad I can help her out with that. What is she watching tonight?
1: Well, we're gonna watch nobody when I'm done. I've got a I've got a screening screener link that expires. It's very much like Mission Impossible. It will expire in a certain amount of hours, so we have to watch that when I'm when I'm done with you. So yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so speaking of Mission Impossible, you have a an awesome podcast which I recently discovered called Light the Fuse, which is everything Mission Impossible from A to Z, everywhere in between. Um. So I want. I guess what I want to know is. When is, when's Tom Cruise going to come on? I know you've gotten big names. You've gotten the directors, editors,
1: composers. Soon, we hope soon. I mean, we had McQuarrie on for our 100th episode, and he promised Tom for our 200th episode. Ooh. So what McQuarrie doesn't realize is we're going to get there pretty quick. So he's going to have to put up or shut up pretty soon. But no, I mean, we were we were supposed to visit the set of 7 and 8 uh, last year. Obviously, uh, the world changed, and we did not get to do that. We thought that we would probably have time Uh, With Tom there, but um, yeah, I mean, hopefully soon he's got to, he's going to have a bunch of movies to promote over the next couple of years. So we will be there uh, whenever we can. So yeah. That's amazing. Hopefully soon. That's the, that's the goal. But then what do we just turn off the podcast after that? Like, where do you go from there? (laughs) Just mic drop. Yeah. I mean, you guys
0: like really you get down to the nitty gritty questions. I can't wait to hear what you have prepared for Tom Cruise, because really he has all of the answers to all of the things you guys haven't found out yet.
1: I think he he does. And and you know what? He I feel like he appreciates our somewhat psychopathic level of enthusiasm. (laughs) You know, every time we talk to people who work on these movies, they always say that you have to really up your game. Because Tom is just working on a different level of humanity, you know. Yes. So I feel like he will appreciate two men in their 30s devoting so much of their free time to the franchise that he has lovingly crafted. And so we think we're gonna bond with him on that level of just pure enthusiasm, you know. Yeah, so. you
0: guys might be producers on on Mission
1: Nine. <laughs> we gotta, we gotta, we gotta pitch ready for a a Paramount Plus TV show. We're ready to go. <laughs> workplace comedy is set in the IMF. That's all I'm going to say. Let's make that happen.
0: Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah.
1: A new take. A new take. Yeah.
0: We won't go too far down the Michigan hole because that could, that could go for a while. But I wanted to talk to you uh, about your day job. I know that you uh, you currently work for Collider and you've worked for
1: IndieWire, Vanity Fair. Yes. I've, I've freelanced for literally everyone. And uh, yeah, so... Yeah, the, I am a, a film journalist. I do a lot of stuff about Disney. Um, that's where I met our mutual friend uh, Alex and and previous guest on the podcast. Yeah. And yeah, it's uh, it's fun running around. I mean, there's not as much running around anymore. There's a lot more just, like I said, opening up timed screeners and watching them in a <laughs> certain amount of time. But, you know, it's it's a lot of fun. And yeah, you can read all of all that stuff online should you choose. Yeah.
0: Have there been some guests that you were just super intimidated to interview in your past years
1: yeah i mean actors are always super intimidating and um they're the people i don't like to talk to the that much because it's just the i don't, I don't think acting is that much of a you know a stretch i feel like if i was paid millions of dollars to pretend to be someone else i would be okay with that but um, yeah, I mean, my my very first, like, big stars, one-on-one sit-down interview was with Ryan Gosling for Blue Valentine, mm-hmm. which tells you how long I've been doing this, mm-hmm. and I was so terrified, and he was just absolutely adorable and very sweet, and so, it yeah, kind of, you know, I haven't had too many bad experiences. People talk about, you know, going into a room, and, and the other thing is, like, a lot of times you only have five minutes with these people, so... Yeah. You know, if they're going to be a jerk to you in five minutes, then they're probably not very nice in real life. But um, yeah, I haven't had too many bad experiences. So happily. Who was one of your favorites to uh, talk with? You know, I, I I love talking to filmmakers. I love talking to Guillermo del Toro. He's probably my favorite person to talk to. And I've talked to him a few times for a few different things, because thankfully, he always has amazing projects coming out. But he is just Such a lovely man and so knowledgeable and so generous with that knowledge. Um, It's just a, it's always a pleasure to get to sit down with him, you know? Yeah.
0: He seems like a really nice guy and obviously just super passionate about film, film history and and everything.
1: Yeah. He's, he's forgotten more about movies than I will ever know. I sincerely (laughs) believe that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. He's like the, uh, the godfather of, of film history. Yes. He's up up in the, up in the ranks.
1: Yes, for sure. He is amazing.
0: Okay, Drew. Um, I just got a text on my phone that the that the world is ending. So we better get to um your capsule, start putting yeah. some films in there.
1: Yeah, we gotta we gotta fill this capsule up. I hope that the capsule that we put together tonight will last longer than the Nickelodeon Studios capsule in Orlando, Florida, because I don't think anybody knows where that <laughs> capsule is. So if anybody has any leads, please let us know. I yeah. think yeah,
0: it got cemented over at some point accidentally. Yes. Yes. <laughs> All right, Drew, my first question for your capsule is what is the first movie you ever purchased with your own money?
1: Ooh, that's a great question. I mean, I am now of an age where I have lived through several generations of home video media, right? Yeah. I mean, I remember Betamax and I remember wondering why we couldn't get certain movies on Betamax because they were only on VHS. <laughs> and then obviously VHS and DVD and now Blu-ray and and 4K the one that that sticks out, I remember buying the first d v d for my d v d player in the christmas nineteen ninety nine season and it was the Matrix on d v d yeah, um, you know, I think I was a junior or a senior in high school, and it was just like the coolest thing um that movie obviously had such a huge impact, but you know to have the d v d and it was had so many special features and obviously as a as a nerd, I really appreciated all that stuff, and and then I later worked in a video store, so I was I was always surrounded by physical media, and now again I am just terrorizing my wife with the amount of Blu-rays um, and 4K uh, <laughs> discs we have in this house that will crush us all one day. <laughs>
0: So are you a pack rat? Do you still have that DVD? Like do you have all of your I don't.
1: I mean, I I've sort of it's sort of gotten replaced as the generations have gone on, but I do appreciate physical media and I think that we should all be keeping, you know, keeping that in our lives because there are so many things that are just not available. And there are so many things that I want to show my wife or watch again that that are not streaming anywhere. And the only place that you can get it is on a disc. And there are so many great um, sort of smaller labels like, you know, Lorber and Shout Factory and Criterion that are doing this great work to preserve the movies. So, yeah, I must throw an obscene amount of money their way to keep this going. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. I feel bad when I have, like, thrown away some of my DVDs. I'm like, oh, I'll be able to get those at a better thing later. And and they just, they're not there anymore.
1: Yes. As someone who spent about 20 minutes a day trying to figure out how to watch the 1991 John Laroquette. Uh, Denzel Washington movie, not John Laricat, John Lithgow movie, Ricochet, today. <laughs> I sympathize. And it's on s- some Cinemax streaming platform, so now I've got to sort of sign up for a free trial just to watch the movie and then cancel immediately. But <laughs> but things like that come up, right? Where you're like, how do I watch this movie? Yeah, um, where is it? Where is it, yeah.
0: I know that I've been uh, pushing Alex to get Condor Man into the Disney Plus Category or Disney yes. Plus platform.
1: I'm not sure if you're familiar yeah, with that. <laughs> I am. I mean, I think it'll be there soon. There's some really interesting movies coming on this this month, including this bizarre movie where uh Jason Robarts plays Mark Twain. It's called Mark Twain and me. It was a Disney Channel original movie back when Disney Channel was a premium cable channel, yeah, like HBO. Um and there's a lot of weird stuff coming on. So, so I think Condor Man will be sooner rather than later. We will have Condor Man to enjoy. You know, there's a Condor Man reference in a in a Toy Story short from a few years ago. That's right. That's what gives me a lot of hope is that yeah.
0: little McDonald's kind of toy car.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was great.
0: Okay, Drew, what is the movie that everyone in the world needs to see once?
1: <sighs> wow, I can't say a Mission Impossible movie. That would just be, it would be too cliche. <laughs> um, Yeah, I mean, I think that Citizen Kane is something that everyone should see once. Yeah, Right, I mean, it's on every film school syllabus, but it's still pretty staggering. Um, And maybe there's some renewed interest after Mank. I don't really know if Mank really (laughs) hit uh, the cultural zeitgeist, uh, but I, I thought it was great, and I think that if that can kind of spur some interest. But, I mean, it's just such an amazing artifact as well, where you hear, oh, it's the best movie ever, blah, 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 and then you watch it, and you're like, oh, yeah, this is actually the movie that everyone should watch and the way that it was sort of breaking ground so long ago is really astounding. So I yeah. would say that. Yes.
0: Yeah. So many techniques, cinematography and yeah. and editing just that's the birth of it. And people don't really understand it until like you realize like this was the first one to do it, to do all of these things um, yeah. that we take for granted now.
1: And it was, you know, and Orson Welles never had that level of control again, you know, Touch of Evil is amazing, and I love that they've sort of restored it, and Magnificent Ambersons and things like that, but, you know, it is hard to top Citizen Kane. and to think that he did it right out of the gate, it's just amazing. It's like, it's annoyingly great for such a young, you know, professional.
0: Yeah, it's, exactly, (laughs) it's annoying that he just killed it on his first try, and he was like, what, 25? Something like that. He
1: was 23. Yeah. And the only reason I know that is because there's that great scene in, in Ed Wood where he's like bemoaning, you know, his, his lack of success. And he, uh, you know, cites that. And then of course later meets Orson Welles, which is such a great sequence. But yeah. So watch Ed Wood as well. That's yeah.
0: My other favorite, um, citizen Kane reference in another film is from, um, super bad.
1: Okay. Yes.
0: Where Jonah Hill is telling his friend that his first girlfriend was so hot and now he's had a dry spell for two years. And he's like, I peaked you soon. And then the friend's like, yeah, you're like Orson Welles.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's true. See, this can be applied to so many different scenarios in life (laughs) and you really have to watch it to to understand.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Let's say that one of your friends, family members is having a bad day and um, you want to show them a movie to cheer them up. What's the movie that you're going to choose to cheer someone up?
1: Maybe I will choose a mission impossible movie. Now, maybe I will say, you know what? You and I, let's go sit down in front of the biggest TV we can find, and watch Mission Impossible: Ghost Protocol, a movie that very much feels like just injecting pure joy into your heart. Much like, much like Pulp Fiction's adrenaline shot, it is just a shot of pure joy. Yeah, it's just a nonstop delight. So much fun! It's so much fun. It. it we were talking about IMAX before we we started the show, and and I distinctly remember seeing that because it was in imax before it was in regular theater so i saw it at the the lincoln center imax lincoln square and it was just it was an utterly life-changing experience literally now that i've wasted three years of my life on this stupid podcast because of it but you know it, it was really profound and it, it's i think it is genuinely just a lovely wonderful upbeat movie it's just great great fun
0: yeah, as soon as Dean Martin comes on uh in the movie, you're yes. like
1: okay, this
0: is a different Mission Impossible. Yes. And yes. I am I'm into it.
1: <laughs> yeah, Brad Bird. I would choose a Brad Bird movie regardless of the situation because he is just such a effervescent personality and his movies have such such heart and such humanity and uh you know, such passion. So yeah, it's it's an amazing uh an amazing accomplishment i think too to to have a movie that's that different within the the franchise as well
0: yeah while we're on the topic i haven't gotten to the to your podcast yet where you guys rank um the series could you give us your your list of uh let's go let's go worst to best
1: well i think two is the undisputed worst um yeah uh it's just I mean, it's it's still fun, but it is always such a chore whenever we have to rewatch it. So I would say two is my least. I'll go least favorite to favorite because you know I have yeah. I have room in my heart for all of them. So I would say two, then three, which I'm not a, as big a fan of as many people. I I appreciate what it did to the franchise, but uh, I'm not the biggest fan. So two, three, five because I can barely understand what is actually going on in the movie, but I. Obviously, love the craft, and there, there are some of the best sequences. Obviously, the airplane at the beginning, and the Taurus, the underwater sequence, and all that. Uh, so then, four uh, Ghost Protocol because I love it to death. Then Fallout, and then number one, still number one, Brian De Palma's masterpiece, Mission Impossible, the one that started it all. Still the king. Yeah, that's that's my. I mean, they all all the the top three kind of can slide around, but I think that's where I've kind of fallen. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I agree with you. The top three for mine can definitely shift quite quickly and easily. Right. Depending on the year that you watch it. Are they the
1: same for you or are they they different? Your top three.
0: No. So, um, my top one is mission impossible three.
1: Wow. Why, why do you love that one? You know,
0: there's something about I think all of JJ's films where the editing and the pacing is so tight that it just, it takes you in a certain direction where you're just in his hands and there are so many little moments that are just huge for me like you know when they shoot the little tracker from the camera and the little radar um antenna pops up like that's just a little thing of course when he's escaping um from imf he comes out of the tunnel and then he knocks over the um his fake job, all the brochures for his fake job. Yes. All those spilled out. And you're just like, yes, um, all these little things, the little fight in the elevator where his leg is attached to the, the stretcher and he's still kicking ass. Right. There's just so many moments. It just, it's constantly exciting from start to finish. Like there's no lulls.
1: for me. Right. I just wish there were some lulls. Maybe that's my problem. I wish there were lulls. Cause I think there we needed more of Philip Seymour Hoffman's character.
0: Of course. Yeah. I, think this,
1: I think the franchise generally has a problem with villains until Fallout, where I think he was great villain. But I also, the reason I, I, I bumped that one down, too, is it's so televisual. I mean, this, the movie is almost entirely close-ups. Yeah. And if I was paying for a $200 million Mission Impossible movie, I'd want to see more of the Mission Impossible movie. So <laughs> and we've talked to people on the on the show where they say, you know, you couldn't really see what I did. Because it was so close. But I think there is some amazing stuff in there. Um, and I would love to have seen that story, this new ethos of of Cruz doing his own stunts. I would love to see that applied to Mission Impossible 3. Because there's clearly some like CGI and stuff right. in it when he's when he's jumping off the building in Shanghai and all that. And it was like, if they'd made that movie now, he'd really be jumping off that building. So yeah. <laughs> let's see That's that true. version. Yeah. Okay, so that's your number 1. What's your what are 2 and 3? 2 would be the original number 1. Yeah. And then
0: right after that is Ghost Protocol, which Okay. Th- those three are all so tight in different ways. Yeah. It's it's a nose for each one, just by a nose. Right. And then um Rogue Nation and then Fallout and then number 2.
1: Wow, I'm shocked to see Fallout so low. Yeah,
0: Fallout there's I rewatched it recently um, because of your podcast and I was like, there's just so many scenes where I'm like, I get bored or I don't understand how certain action is possible. Like the plutonium, it's so close to Tom and Benji and then it just disappears. And then when they're in the catacombs and all those guys with guns show up, like the geography is just so bad. You don't know who's what, where's where. And it's just like, it was a mess for me. And the biggest thing about that I hate about trailers, which is why I don't watch to the full extent of the entire duration is because you get to see um, Superman. What's his name? Henry Cavill. Henry Cavill. You see him shooting at Tom Cruise in the helicopter. So that's already spoiled that he is the bad guy. So a lot of that, um, that cat and mouse or mystery is never really there for me because
1: yes. Although McQuarrie will say in his defense, he said, look at his mustache you can tell by his mustache that he is a bad guy. <laughs> we don't need to cover this up. It's there, you know. But, yeah, I, I understand that. I, I, I just thought that it was, a pretty, it was a pretty amazing kind of culmination of all the movies. And it also kind of pushed it into some darker, weirder territory that I was super into. And obviously the music in these movies is so important. And I thought, I thought Lauren's score was just unbelievable. Those bongos. Oh, my God.
0: It's the best. It's the yeah. best band, Yeah. <laughs> I play that that soundtrack a lot when I'm my doing my editing job here at home.
1: Yeah, I I'm, I'm sure it it fuels your Just your passion to get the yeah. 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 <laughs>
0: what's what's the better motorcycle chase? Is it is it Rogue Nation or is it Fallout?
1: The Fallout motorcycle chase is like its own little movie. Like there's like three acts to that motorcycle chase. Right. You know, it's him it's him interacting with Elsa and then him getting away from the cops and then you know all that stuff although that shirt he wears in rogue nation is so cool and i it's love the so way cool. that it's open and it's like flapping in the breeze and the thing going off behind him the explosion and him just sort of casually turning around is the best <laughs> i mean yes. it's, come on that's so great it looks so great yeah my last
0: uh, question for you or topic on mission Impossible, before we move on one reason why i have a a love for Mission Impossible Three is the opening um sequence, which is, you know, it's played twice. But when Tom Cruise is being interrogated and he's, you know, he eventually cries when he's tied to the chair. I feel like that is what Tom Cruise would be like if he was captured in real life and interrogated. Like I feel like I was watching the real Tom Cruise and he wasn't acting.
1: And that's why you love it? Well, it's not
0: why I love it, but it's just like it I'm like, I get to see Tom Cruise acting at the highest level for five minutes.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting you bring that up because before these movies kind of took over his life, he was doing some interesting stuff. You know, it was like Magnolia, Eyes Wide Shut, and A Few Good Men, An Interview with the Vampire. I mean, the 90s for him was so fascinating because it was him working with every single major filmmaker, you know, almost in a row. And it, it was such a fascinating period. And then... As he got older, he kind of slipped into the more genre stuff and you know, things like Oblivion. We were talking about Kaczynski earlier. And American Made is like the outlier because that was like an actual story about a real person and real emotions. But I appreciate that you bring that up because it's like, even though he's he's fully given over to these movies, yeah, he still gives it that commitment that he would have assigned to another Kubrick movie or another Paul Thomas Anderson movie, and it's just It adds so much to those movies. And it's like, yeah, you can be like, "Eh, why isn't he doing something else? But I think after he gets these movies out of his system, he will go back to that stuff. It'll be like late Redford style, you know, career stuff. And it's going to be awesome. And I'm just so excited to watch whatever he does next after he is done jumping off the buildings, you know? Yeah.
0: After he breaks both of his ankles, then he can... (laughs) Go back to just serious drops.
1: Yeah. No injuries yet on these two though. So we got to put that out there. Yeah. That's good. That's good. Okay. Last thing I will say in
0: defense of three, you know, all of the, you know, James Bonds, the Bourne series, they're all saving the world, but in three, he's saving someone that we see and that we know it's his wife. And uh, the stakes are better for me that way.
1: Do you think that three is really just a reskinned version of true lies though? (laughs) and is it just a really long episode of alias
0: yeah i heard you guys say that
1: (laughs) (laughs) well we recently found this article from creative screenwriting where this they're all talking about it and they literally were like yeah we just went back to old alias ideas that we didn't get to use
0: and doing the cpr on tom is a straight pull from lost season one yeah where he gets thumped on the chest to bring him back to life
1: I appreciate that you appreciate Julia because she has obviously become a very important part of the franchise. And I cannot bemoan 3 too much because it it gives Fallout the emotional engine that makes the entire climax of that movie so much more powerful and meaningful. So, you know, it's like, yeah, I can poo-poo 3 all I want, but it's, you know, ended up enriching the franchise in a lot of really interesting ways.
0: Well put. And we'll leave it at that for now. (laughs) Let's go into the the horror genre.
1: Okay. I'm imagining the capsule in front of me.
0: What is the movie that scared you the most?
1: Well, growing up, Pet Cemetery, the original Pet Cemetery. Really really threw me for a loop. I'm not sure how permissive your parents were, but I had a you know, complete set of cable channels going <laughs> into my TV in my room and I just remember Running down the stairs and like out the door into the backyard after seeing the guy with the kind of like mangled head, uh, that ghost that appears to him. That really, really freaked me out. And also, it's not a horror movie, but the ending of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade mm-hmm. really freaked me out where the guy becomes a skeleton. Yeah. Because I was on TV all the time, too. Yeah, it's just, yeah. you know. Ugh. So those are the two that scared me as a child.
0: Yeah, you're not the first person um, to, to say on this podcast to call out Last Crusade's Melting Man.
1: Yeah,
0: or no, sorry, the melting, the melted, sorry, the Melting Man is from Raiders. Yes, the aging rapidly man. That's from Crusade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yes, yeah, yeah. That is- yeah,
1: it, it's it's upsetting, uh, <laughs> and I pre- I love when Spielberg gives into those darker tendencies. I like a I like a mean, nasty Spielberg as much as I love a cuddly E.T. Spielberg. <laughs> uh, Drew, are you much of a crier? Do you, do you enjoy a good cry movie? I, I feel like I've been crying at everything during quarantine. And I don't know if that's just a sort of heightened emotional state given the state of the world, but I I can cry. I've been crying a lot recently. If you're going to ask me a movie that, that made me cry, I've got one in the chamber. What's What's the one that makes you cry every time? The Green Mile... I remember being a teenager, which is the time when I should be the most sort of guarded emotionally and just literally from the opening frame bawling throughout that entire three hour and however many minute long movie. And I think part of that was reading the books because they sort of came, there was like a chapter a month. It was really the coolest way to read a Stephen King book. And and somehow the ending of that book was even more devastating (laughs) than the movie. And I think I was sort of like, Preparing myself for that, but it's also a sad, sad movie. Yeah. Beautiful, but sad. Is it? I think that
0: when the mouse dies, that gets everybody.
1: Yeah, yeah. That guy is, you know, obviously that actor who plays the bad prison guard is like a pedophile or something. And it's like, oh, it works. Like, he is an evil SOB, and you can hate him even more now that you know who he is in real life, you know? Yeah. Um. But, yeah, that's brutal. Just... That That crack of stepping on that mouse uh, terrible.
0: What a terrible villain too, like that guy you hate him so much. yeah uh
1: what's his name? Percy Wetmore is Percy his name. yeah just a terrible human being <laughs> terrible. <laughs> Horrible. but he gets his. Is there
0: a a character in a movie that you at one point in your life relate to a lot?
1: Well I mean I think that I relate to every Tom Cruise character, which is why <laughs> I go out and I bought the sunglasses from Cocktail and, you know, I walked down the aisle to a song from Top Gun. Um, yeah. But um, I remember relating a lot to the Jamie Kennedy character in the first Scream oh. and that kind of like encyclopedic, obsessive nerd. And then when I was in high school and beyond, I worked in a video store. So uh, the prof- the prophecy was really fulfilled with that one. But yeah that was a heartbreaker when he gets killed in the second one. I was like, oh my God. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's me. I'm dying. That's me. (laughs) Yeah. But he, he he did a great job in that movie. That's a, that's a great movie. Scream is so good. It's still so good.
0: Yeah. That, that deserves a rewatch.
1: Yeah. Do it. Do you and your wife, uh, watch a lot of
0: romantic movies together?
1: Um, I guess so. I mean, I think we hear like, if something is good. Like we watched The Lovebirds last year. Um, well, you know, Shape of Water we both love to death, and I think is one of the better romances of the past few years. Uh, completely bizarre, but I mean totally yeah. works. But yeah, talking about my good friend Guillermo. Yeah, I love <laughs> I loved that.
0: <laughs> what what's your your favorite romantic movie?
1: Oh god. You know, for a sheer sheer impact and also for the sheer sort of visual splendor i think that titanic is probably hard to top i mean i would be very surprised if anything sort of topped that in my lifetime just the size of it the complexity of the production the sensitivity that he wrote the characters i mean i think that a lot of people have been watching james cameron movies during the quarantine and are just so amazed that he has only made so few movies, uh, but also just how great the movies that he's made are. Yeah, I agree
0: with you. That's, I would not say it's cliche. It's, it was, you know, everyone's favorite in the nineties. But when you actually, you know, think back to it, it's, it's solid on every level of, of filmmaking and storytelling.
1: Yeah. It's just, there's nothing like it. And every time somebody tries to, you know, dismiss him or why are you making three more Avatar movies or whatever. It's like, have you ever, you know, lowballed James Cameron and not been blown away by the final product, right? I mean, even watching Avatar flat on TV is amazing. I mean, it's totally transporting. And, you know, I'm a little disappointed that these are probably going to be the last movies he makes in his lifetime, but Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure they're going to be the best. Bring them on.
0: I have one specific um, memory with Avatar. I saw it in, I think it came out in two different versions of 3D. I'm not sure if, if my eyes have changed over the years of getting older, but that was like the last movie that I ever saw in 3D that actually was good in 3D and that I appreciated. And like you said, got transported to that world.
1: Yeah. Well, I remember I was at like the first critic screening of it in New York. And I remember people asking me about it afterwards. And I was like, just drink a lot of water beforehand because there has never been a 3d movie that long either. Because uh, if you yeah. think about what 3d movies really are, a lot of it's animated stuff. So like how to train your dragon up was in 3d or horror movies, like, you know, Friday the 13th part three or whatever, uh, my bloody Valentine 3d. So it was like a real serious two hour thing <laughs> that it was like, it was physically draining, but also like the most amazing thing Ever, yeah. I, I wonder if he's gonna try to bring 3D back for the new ones or what, because nothing has really reached that level. A lot have tried, yeah, but yeah, nothing's quite gotten there.
0: Uh, is there a movie that gives you goosebumps every time you watch it? And this can be taken one of two ways, and I'll leave it up to you which way you want to take it.
1: Well, what are the two ways? What are you? You're, you're sort of leading. For me, goosebumps
0: are either they make you super excited, um, you know, escapism, something like that, or it's just terrified by what's about to happen.
1: You know, we watched a bunch of, uh, I've been sort of programming these double features at, at our apartment. So we've, we've been watching a lot of sort of thematically linked movies and we watched the parallax view and all the president's men one night and those movies just in terms of sheer sort of like, suspense and and sort of existential dread even though we know obviously all the president's men we know what happens we know the story but that kind of like unraveling of the conspiracy is so wonderful and another movie like that is jfk which i think is still maybe the most amazingly edited movie of all time just the way that that thing is put together even when you watch the you know three hour and 40 minute extended cut which i would recommend everyone sort of sit down and watch that um but those are the kind of movies that, you know, kind of get the hair sticking up at the back of my neck. That kind of like systemic evil is just so, you know, overwhelming. And um, the journeys that the characters go through, it's just a wonderful, it's a wonderful scenario to put a character in and a character that doubles as the surrogate for the audience too, because you're understanding the machinations of these companies or you know, countries in a really fascinating way. Right, right. And Zodiac is like that too, in a way. Yes. Yeah, which is my favorite David Fincher movie. and Oh, wow. Just one of the best,
0: yeah. We talked about um, Zodiac uh, for the same question, actually, with Matt Mercer. Goosebumps every time. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just something about real-life events on screen. Just, yeah, give you goosebumps. And
1: something that, like JFK, not really ever resolved either, right? Mm -hmm. We think we know. The movie obviously points to a pretty compelling subject but the fact that that's still lingering is just such a weird creepy thing and obviously the use of hurdy-gurdy man in that opening sequence is like one of the more chilling sort of moments taking this like flower power song and putting it over a brutal you know attempted murder is uh, pretty amazing when it comes
0: to documentaries i feel like if a documentary does their job or they, if they are successful, they can get you to change your mind about something or change the way that you live your life. Is there any movie, any documentary that has changed the way that you live your life or interact with the world?
1: Well, no, because I'm so shallow that nothing can really get me to eat a stock of celery instead of a burger or something. <laughs> but, you know, I think that I think that there, that documentaries open your eyes to things that you would have never known before. I mean, even something like Blackfish, which showed you what a profoundly harmful scenario that is. Um, but there's also, you know, we watched My Psychedelic Love Story. Did you see that yet? The Errol Morris documentary? No. It's, uh, it's wonderful. And his work is always very inspiring to me. And something like Thin Blue Line, which it was a documentary that literally overturned a a case, you know, a murder case. That's sort of a profound thing. And I, and I'm, I'm fascinated with the kind of way that these documentaries are put together just as much as the documentary themselves. And that one was really amazing because you were, you're working through the case as a viewer and, you know, it's just an amazing sort of accomplishment. But yeah, I, I always draw a blank when I'm talking about documentaries, but There's a documentarian that I've become friends with named Rodney Asher, who has made some of the most fascinating documentaries of the last few years. Did you see Room 237 about The Shining?
0: No, I haven't. No.
1: Okay. That's wonderful. He has a new one this year called A Glitch in the Matrix, which is about people who believe that the world is, you know, a simulation, simulation theory. Yeah. And uh, he did one called The Nightmare about night terrors. And talk about people who just view the world in a different way. Uh, that you will never you know it's fascinating and you can kind of see where they're coming from but it's very hard to to take that red pill and to see what they see you know see the codes of the matrix but i would recommend anyone check out his films because he is uh such a distinct voice in the documentary space and his movies are so singular and fascinating that um yeah he's just wonderful So anything by, was it Rodney? Rodney Asher, yes. Rodney Asher. I think Room 237 is now very hard to find because I'm sure the rights issues uh, involving The Shining (laughs) make that difficult. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure anyone listening to this is very clever and they have access to the internet. You can figure out how to get it. Um, Yeah.
0: There are ways.
1: There are ways. I would never encourage that, but sometimes (laughs) if you don't want to try to figure out where Ricochet is playing, I'm sure there's a download of it Someone, Yeah. (laughs)
0: Drew, is there a movie um, that you will always remember not because of um, the movie itself, but the viewing experience around it was so unique or so special to you that it'll always have a special place in your memory?
1: Yeah, that Ghost Protocol screening was really special because I literally was talking to Brad Bird on the phone before that, doing an interview with him for the playlist. I went and saw the movie in the afternoon with Charles who is now my co-host on Light the Fuse. It was the most amazing IMAX experience I think we ever had. We were literally like screaming with joy in the on in the middle of a, you know, 2 p.m. showing and everyone's <laughs> looking around at us like who are these crazies? And then after that we went to Lincoln Center and there was this amazing kind of retrospective of Bird's career and we chatted with him afterwards and it was just super duper fun and uh It was an amazing sort of like day with Brad Bird, you know, Um, and then like, you know, I'm very lucky that I get to go to these premieres and things. And and we saw we saw Toy Story four like two days before I got married. And I thought Toy Story 4 is a total masterpiece. I think the best Toy Story movie. And it's also such an amazing love story. And so to see that love story a couple of days before I got married was very special. So that's more recent. Yeah, yeah.
0: Oh yeah, Ghost Protocol is definitely a goosebump moment for me when
1: yes. I think it it switched it, it's when
0: the film switches to IMAX when he is standing in the threshold yep. of the window and you're just like holy shit this is going to yep. happen. I'll never forget how big and just wide that frame was. It was so cool.
1: And then it, it was also preceded by that amazing scene from Dark Knight Rises too with the plane and Bane taking the blood out of the guy. And I mean, it was just such an amazing kind of like day at the cinema, you know, like leave your worries behind and (laughs) just go watch ghost protocol and you will be blown away.
0: Brad Bird day, not a bad day in the day of the life of Drew Taylor. (laughs) No,
1: no. And then to go hound him as part of this podcast, we literally went over to Brad Bird's house and sat around for like two and a half hours talking about ghost protocol. It was pretty awesome. So you haven't gotten to that episode yet. You will. It's a treat. (laughs) can't wait you lucky son of a bitch
0: (laughs) okay we have got just a couple left here to fill up your capsule okay what movie would you choose that would showcase the good side of humanity
1: oh man we don't we don't have much of a good side I mean maybe something like Shawshank Redemption which just showcases sort of the, the humanity in us all and the kind of you know how we're all damaged but you know we can all get through it if there if kindness is allowed to get to us what we can how we can reciprocate maybe but i'm obviously such a mean horrible person that watches all these dark films you know i don't know um yeah i think that that's that's a good one right
0: that is a great one yeah kindness and uh kindness. looking out for each other
1: yeah maybe et i'm always very drawn to stories where there is a inhuman friendship going on. Sure. Like even shape of water. It's like the, you know, there's a creature from the black lagoon type creature or iron giant with the robot. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, mileage you can get out of that because the, the creature obviously brings out the humanity in you, and you know, so. Right. Yeah. There is something special about when there's, it happens a lot. I
0: think in, in kids movies or family movies where a kid, be friends whether it be a robot or a a giant monster and they have Mm -hmm. to describe the world or introduce them to the world and and yeah it does show the nice side of humanity and the and the and the bright side of it
1: yeah even something like lilo and stitch where the family is so broken and the little creature comes in and sort of helps rebuild that just lovely it's just godzilla versus kong is coming out next week and i i have to tell everyone to go watch that. But there's a lovely relationship between Kong and a little deaf girl that is absolutely wonderful and makes that movie a lot more special than if it was just two giant creatures battling each other. So yeah. Very cool. Very cool.
0: Now, uh, drew, this is the first time we've met. I don't know if you have kids or if you, if you're planning on having kids. Um, but I know as film lovers, we love to pass movies on to people like, Oh, you haven't seen this. You got to see this. Is there a movie that, yeah, you kind of have set aside that you would like to show your kids or maybe a young person in your life.
1: Uh, I'm going to have to just uh, be the annoying uncle with, with Alex's kid. I think, I don't think we're having kids, but I I do think about this uh, sort of generational idea. And I think, you know, we were talking about the last crusade. I would love to see some little 10 year old kid watch Raiders of the lost Ark for the first time. I think that would be a pretty profound moment. There's just something about that movie that, uh, regardless of gender, but it it just hits you at the right time, and it also sort of awakens that childlike wonder, and uh, just the way it's constructed and everything. And you know, I gr- I would I would think about the summer of '91 a lot because it had it was Terminator Two, uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and The Rocketeer were all in theaters, and that was such a profound sort of like trifecta of movies for me when i was i don't know eight or you know whatever it was so being able to to generate that experience again but who knows kids today maybe have seen everything on youtube and Mm -hmm. are not impressed with a silver man you know turning into the floor or whatever or a guy with a rocket pack but at the time it was it was unbelievable and i think still has that kind of wonder that wonder is the thing that i think is is attempted by so many modern movies and rarely achieved yeah that just sort of glittery newness to something. Um, but yeah.
0: Yeah. Raiders, one of the best thrill rides of all time.
1: Better than a day at the theme park, baby. (laughs) I love that. I love that.
0: (laughs) Okay. Here is the, the final question. What is your, this is the hardest one. What's your favorite movie?
1: Oh man. Well, are we talking about a movie that I, I've watched the most or one that I just love to death or what are the credit? What have people based this on before, before me?
0: Yeah, that is the perfect question because yeah, some films you love, but you can't rewatch them over and over for maybe It's too emotional or, you know, whatever, maybe the runtime is just giant. Um, I don't make people choose between the two, so I will leave it up to you on what you would want to classify as your favorite.
1: Oh, <sighs> You're really putting me in a tight spot here on the time <laughs> capsule. I don't know if it's my favorite movie, but I will say that I can put it on pretty much whenever. It'll put a smile on my face. I am dazzled by the filmmaking and the performances. And that is, I think Alex might have said this, uh, but Back to the Future.
0: Hell yeah. Hell yeah.
1: I mean, unimpeachable from start to finish, and a complete joy, and... um I mean, it just goes down so smooth, you know. There's not a lot of big questions being asked, but there is so much humanity and heart there. The score is amazing. The Huey Lewis songs are amazing. It's 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 a it's a and it's also a movie that's so rooted in the '80s, but is so timeless. And maybe mm-hmm. it is that '50s component, but yeah, just what a movie! What a movie!
0: I was just oddly enough thinking about that movie today, and uh, I was like, I don't think I've ever heard anyone speak badly or just like, eh, it's not for me. Like I think everyone loves that movie to some extent and people can try and poke holes in it for the time paradoxes, whatever. But it is one of the closest things I think to a perfect film. So happy that you chose
1: <laughs> Yeah, for sure. And it also it transports me back to childhood in such a profound way. Yeah. And specifically there was a moment I can't remember which movie they were promoting for the that was coming out it was either two or three but they showed the first one on nbc or whatever and it's just every time i watch it i'm 10 years old sitting on the floor you know on a dark saturday night watching this thing unfold and it is just amazing i think zemeckis is an is such a craftsman and he just put that thing together so beautifully and then you read about how you know, quickly it was assembled and everything. And it just makes it even more impressive that they were able to to pull it off. Yeah. And, and J and Michael J Fox's performance is genuinely wonderful. Yes. I mean, I was rewatching part of it earlier this week and he does all these, like these watch kind of gags where he'll like, he'll look at his watch, like it's not working and he, he'll, you know, it's just, it's amazing. He's just, it's incredible. It's just an incredible movie. I love it to death. Yeah. One of the best. One of the
0: best my first memory with that movie is my babysitter actually brought it over for us to watch, mm-hmm. and of course, it was late at night, and we had to go to bed. We couldn't finish it so i I ran to her house the next morning. I was like, "Can I borrow back to the future <laughs> and then uh we'll finished watching it and then instantly rewatched it again and I've never done that ever in my life with another film. It was just just so good
1: yeah i I would i I give you credit for falling asleep. I would be thinking about it all night, and my neuroses would just build and build, and I would probably, you know, I don't know what you could have done then, but, you know, broken into a blockbuster or something and taken the tape, but i I watched a few movies twice. I watched Kill Bill in the theaters twice in one day, the first one, because I was just so impressed. I went at like four and ten or something, but yeah, it takes a lot to watch a movie twice in one day, but
0: you did it. You did it. Um, drew, that is going to be, um, the end of your, well, it's the beginning of your capsule, but we got to close it up. And since this is a low budget podcast, or it's a no budget podcast, I need you to do the, uh, the sound effects of your capsule closing.
1: All right. Hold on. I got to drill it shut. Okay. It's done. It's good. Nice. This thing can be in the, yeah, this can be in the Orlando earth for many years. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Right next to Nickelodeon. Too. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay, Drew. Um, before we go, is there anything um, that you're working on that you want to
1: talk about, or where can we, where can people find you? There's nothing I can talk about yet. I'm working on a new book project, which is fun and exciting. And if you've kept up with me, that it'll be it'll be a lot of fun if I can ever finish it. And uh, you can tune into uh, Light the Fuse every week, uh, which is my podcast with Charles Hood about Mission Impossible that we've referenced. I mean, this this episode is basically like a Light the Fuse episode, I feel like, <laughs> in the end. Um, and, and you can listen to Fine Tuning, which is my uh, podcast with animation historian Jim Hill, uh, which is also weekly. And just follow me on Twitter, uh, which is Drew Tailored, like a tailored shirt. And you'll get all sorts of wacky insights from me all day long. So check <laughs> check me out. <laughs> Drew, thank you so much for coming
0: on. It's been great talking to you, especially about Mission Impossible. And uh, thank you for your time.
1: Thank you for letting me uh, build my time capsule.
0: You're welcome. <laughs> to find a recap of Drew's time capsule, you can go to lukechaney.com slash MTC. If you like this podcast, please rate it on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show out a bunch. And finally, I will leave you with this movie quote. "Asta lasagna. Don't get any on ya.